Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, talk about having a song in your head. Scientists have recreated a Pink Floyd tune, another brick in the wall, by collecting brain signals from people as they listen to the song. We learn what it tells us about the brain and music perception and why it has implications far beyond one tune. Canada is set to co-host the World Cup in less than three years. It is one of the pinnacle sporting events on the planet, and the men's team will be in the spotlight. Now they've lost the coach who helped guide them to their first World Cup in 36 years. Last year, it may say a whole lot about the dire situation at Soccer Canada, the governing body, just a few years before we host the world. It has been a tough summer for the Trudeau government as poll after poll shows support slipping and the Conservatives moving towards majority territory. We ask a long-time Conservative political strategist about what could explain the shift and just how lasting it could be. But first, police say 12 additional charges have been laid against an Ontario man accused of selling a deadly substance online to those at risk of self-harm. Police allege Kenneth Law operated several websites selling something called sodium nitrite. It's a food additive typically found in processed meats. An Ontario pathologist explains why it's so lethal, how it's being sold, and why Canada could be doing more to regulate. But first up, let's start in the Toronto area tonight with what has been a really disturbing story since it first broke just a while back. Today, police say 12 additional charges have been laid against an Ontario man accused of selling a deadly substance online to those at risk of self-harm. Kenneth Law has now been charged with a total of 14 counts of counselling or aiding suicide within the province of Ontario. Police allege the 57-year-old operated several websites selling sodium nitrite, a food additive typically found in processed meats. Uh, Intentional consumption of excessive amounts of it, though, can reduce oxygen levels, impair breathing, and result in death. Law of Mississauga is already charged with two counts of counselling or aiding suicide. That happened back in May uh, from Peel Region following that an, an initial investigation. York Regional Police Inspector Simon James today said the investigation remains active and very complex. Let us be clear that we will not tolerate criminal actions by those who prey on vulnerable individuals in our communities and we will hold those responsible accountable. Police say it is believed Law was operating websites uh, as of approximately late 2020 where these products were being sold. The victims in Ontario were both male and female between the ages of 16 and 36. On behalf of the investigative team, we offer our sincerest condolences to the loved ones of those we have lost due to these unimaginable set of circumstances. Police have previously said, previously said law is suspected of sending at least 1,200 packages to more than 40 countries. Authorities in the UK, US, Italy, Australia, and New Zealand have all launched investigations. Britain's National Crime Agency uh, said a little bit earlier this week it had identified 232 people there who bought products from the websites in the two years until April. The agency said 88 of those had died. Now, my next guest first sounded the alarm about the growing number of Canadians dying after intentionally ingesting unsafe quantities of sodium nitrate a few years ago ago. Uh, Ontario saw at least 23 sodium nitrate poisoning deaths in 2019 and 2020, according to a study released in 2021 by scientists from the Ontario Forensic Pathology Service. Joining me now is Dr. Taylor, or Tyler Hickey, rather, an assistant professor in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology at the University of Toronto, a forensic pathologist, rather, uh, with the Ontario Forensic Pathology Service and lead author of that study I was mentioning. Dr. Hickey, thanks for your time tonight. 
Uh, thanks for having me. This is one of the, I mean, I think if we see the details of the accusations here, they're really alarming. And I think a lot, I don't know if a lot of people have actually heard about this. Um, you know, it certainly seems to highlight the dangers of it. When did you first come across this issue and how? Yeah, so it was back uh, around 2018, 2019. I was actually uh, just starting my uh, career as a forensic pathologist. And I encountered not one, but uh, two of these cases while working in Toronto. And honestly, prior to that time, I had never really heard much about sodium nitrite or sodium nitrate, uh, and most certainly hadn't heard them as a cause of death. And so it was uh, the novelty of seeing uh, not one but two cases of this seemingly rare uh, event occurring uh, piqued my curiosity and uh, also the need I, I felt at the time to kind of monitor whether whether we might see more of these. Right. And then, and then you went back to sort of see what the history of this might be uh, to try and figure out if there was any explanation to what you were seeing. Yeah, so I put together a, um, a a proposed study with some colleagues, and that included both a retrospective look uh, within the province of Ontario as to whether there had been some deaths of this type previously. And I, I was actually almost surprised that there had only been one identified death of this cause between the years 2000 and 2017. And then that study also included a, a prospective or looking forward uh, approach and so we followed these deaths over the next few years. And in 2018, uh, we saw four deaths in the province of Ontario. In 2019, there were nine. In 2020, uh, up to 14 deaths. And so there was a definite uh, increasing incidence of people dying from these substances. Right. I think people may be familiar with the name uh, sodium nitrite or sodium nitrate. But what exactly is happening in this in this context? Because it's a food preservative, right? That's right. And honestly, I'm not really uh, familiar with any harm that uh, has come to people when it's used uh, routinely by people uh, trained to uh, to use it as a meat preservative or whatnot. But the uh, problems and, and, and the fatalities occur when individuals uh, are able to source uh, purified forms of this salt and basically just what what we observed they they just mix them with uh into a solution and and then drink them and and what turns out to be a a highly toxic uh um, consumption and this is i mean clearly people are accessing this online right that's what you found yeah so it would appear that um yeah i'm not familiar with any of the cases that we saw of people just for example going to a store or something mm -hmm. like that they seem to generally be accessing these chemicals through online uh, vendors and and there could be a, a variety of those and uh, ultimately yeah i think people are having them basically shipped to their to their homes and, and then and then using them uh, after that and sold for this purpose, I understand. Maybe maybe not exclusively, but but oftentimes, at least I imagine in your research, what did you find on that front? Yeah, so I can't really speak to some of those details about what the, uh, say, intended purchase of the uh, intended use by the sellers were. Um, previously, some of these products were accessed through large vendors such as uh, Amazon or eBay, um, mm -hmm. even potentially a, say a chemical company directly and then I, I think there would be other potential uh, vendors and again I, I really can't speak to this but possibly with with selling these things with the intent that someone might use them for self-harm.
Right. How how is it that it's so lethal? What is it that is happening when one consumes it? Yeah. So it, it is a, a interesting and a novel in in how these drugs can cause death. They actually cause a change to the hemoglobin molecule. So this is uh, part of our red blood cells that carries oxygen through the body, and taking too much of these salts, and, and that really only requires, say, a few tablespoons worth, causes a change in hemoglobin such that it cannot uh, carry oxygen appropriately in the body. And so what happens is basically just kind of internally, the body becomes uh, starved of oxygen. And uh, this can happen over what appears to just be, uh, say, a couple hours, and, and then death results. Right. So you suffocate, in other words. It's like uh, an internal suffocation. Yes. Well, um, and there is. I understand there's an antidote, but but um, but I mean, clearly, time is time is is limited here. Correct. So uh, there is, uh, if, if one makes it to hospital, uh, ideally, there is a, a, a potential antidote called methylene blue. And uh, using that would require both the diagnosis of the of the problem. And so when people have this change in their blood from uh, consuming something like sodium nitrate, that's called met hemoglobinemia. And so doctors would first have to diagnose what the problem is, and then uh, I guess in a bit of a race, uh, get them this uh, drug, which can reverse the effects. Uh, however, that's, yeah, as you said, based on identifying, identifying the problem, giving the, the medicine quickly and hoping that the person isn't, uh, I guess, too far along the, the, the toxic pathway. Dr. Hickey, how is it regulated? Because you mentioned, of course, it is a food preservative and quite a common one. And so I don't imagine it's regulated like a narcotic, for instance, when it comes to purchasing it. That's correct. Yeah. So to my knowledge, there isn't presently any uh, strict regulations uh, on who can uh, purchase this substance. I think due to its uh, relatively common use in food preservation, it, uh, it, it appears to exist as a, as, as a, a salt that uh, can be purchased by, uh, by anyone that, that may seek to use it. And up until uh, in recent years, I, I don't think this was a problem in any way because uh, it wasn't uh, apparently causing any harm, certainly not uh, causing deaths. And then I do think the change in uh, in use by, by some people, and, and I do understand it's in the grand scheme of things, might not seem like a huge number of deaths uh, in Ontario. We've seen, uh, you know, 20 or 30 deaths over the past uh, several years, but just the same. I, I do think there would be a value in recognizing that the drug has moved, uh, the, the salt, if you will, has moved from an innocuous seeming substance to one that is being used for self-harm. And given that, I think there may be value in reassessing whether it should just be so readily available or whether perhaps we could have some level of uh, restriction on who can, who can access it easily. When you did this study back back uh, a few years ago, what were your recommendations then coming out of it? Was it to look at to have Health Canada? I suppose that's who would regulate it. Uh, take a closer look at what's happening and sort of get a better picture. Because the other thing I, I believe is that we don't actually have a very clear picture nationwide of what's going on here. Yeah, I think that's fair. So uh, Canada, uh, unfortunately, uh, sometimes the size of the country and, and the, the provincial uh, borders does lead to sometimes uh, province by province uh, studies going on and and oftentimes not a, a formal national picture. 
And so uh, my own study, it, it, it maybe suffers from that in part because my uh, analysis was restricted to Ontario. I think I was able to show that this is a, an emerging problem here in the province of Ontario. And there have been reports uh, of these same deaths in other provinces, which doesn't surprise me uh, at all because it's recognized that this problem is happening in, in several countries around the world uh, as we speak. The purpose of my study, I guess on some, on some basis uh, as a starting point was just to illustrate the problem, to better understand what's happening. And then as a, as a researcher, as kind of a, a frontline physician, uh, I would say it was my, my at least hope that, that these findings would find their way into the hands of people who are able to, are able to make public health changes. And so unfortunately, at some point, you, you end up at a bit of a, a dead end because the, my, my job is, is really just to, uh, to look at deaths in the province of Ontario. And, and then it, the, the findings almost need to be ideally handed off to someone at a higher level that, that does uh, regulations and things of that nature. And as you said, that that ultimately goes to Health Canada. And, and I, I don't work for Health Canada, so I, I can only sort of act as, uh, I guess, an individual with uh, with concerns that, that feels like there could be improvements made in this regard. Yeah, your job is simply to report what you see, right? And then make sure if you start to see a trend that disturbs you to make sure that it's that you raise the flag and, and hopefully someone above someone else who's responsible for the uh, reacting to that does it. In your shoes, This it, it just feels like a really... Um, I want, didn't want to say big deal, but this this is a really scary one. It feels like a scary one uh, because the, 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 what you described in terms of its impact seems so awful and, and just the way it's being distributed as well. I know that's sort of outside your purview, but just from where you sit, uh, this is a really dangerous development, I think, to some extent. Absolutely. And uh, suicide in society is, is uh, such a tragic outcome. And there are, I think, always opportunities that uh, where, wherein we can we can take steps to help uh, prevent suicides, help restrict access to harmful entities for people in uh, challenging mental states that uh, that want to hurt themselves. And so I think there are uh, Ultimately, some of these deaths, maybe all of them, are, are potentially preventable. And I think there's people uh, in the future who whose deaths could be prevented with uh, some tighter regulations around these substances. Well, Dr. Hickey, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Children First Canada has released their sixth annual Raising Canada report today in conjunction with that event, more or less, looking at the top threats facing uh, our country's children and youth. It's based on work by researchers at the University of Calgary, the University of Toronto, and McGill University in Montreal. Some of the main ones are probably familiar, unintentional and preventable injuries, problems with mental health, of course. We saw a lot of that uh, during and in the aftermath of the pandemic. And of course, we uh, will find out a little later in the show that COVID is still here, right? Um, and one that may not come as a complete surprise, but is noteworthy nonetheless, and that is an increase in food insecurity. Sarah Austin is founder and CEO of Children First Canada, and she joins me now with more on this. Sarah, thanks so much for your time tonight. Good evening. Thanks so much for having me. We always think, I think, I think we often think of Canada as being a safe place for, for children and youth, but, but not quite, right? We're seeing a bit of a slip, at least according to some of the data in your report. Yeah, there really is a persistent myth that Canada is a world-leading country for children. And we once were, back in 2010, we were ranked 10th amongst OECD countries for children's well-being. But we've slipped to 30th place. You know, it has been a, we've been on this downward trajectory for many years now. 
and perhaps even more shockingly, we fall into 81st place for the protection of children's rights. We fall far behind because of significant threats to children's mental and physical health, issues like climate change and racism that are plaguing far too many of our kids and preventing them from being able to achieve their full potential. I was looking at the top 10, of course, and a lot of them are, are, are things that you could probably figure out. But what are some of the main threats that you're seeing? And, and what are some of the new ones? Because I was interested in some of the new ones as well. Yeah, I think what stands out to me as I look at the data is that far too many of our kids are being injured, becoming ill and dying from preventable causes. You know, some of the things that might, you might commonly think about, like choking and drowning and falls, suicide is now one of the leading causes of death for children and youth. Uh, which is very alarming for me as a parent of a preteen, let alone as an advocate for children. And we're seeing really alarming rates of um, of abuse and um, and things like online luring of children, which have increased by 615 in the past year. You know, it's really quite shocking that our kids are exposed to such grave dangers online. Um, and uh, there's clearly much more we need to be doing as parents, but also our policymakers need to be stepping up and ensuring that we have the right laws and policies in place to protect our kids. Yeah, we've been talking about that in the show in the last year, just how vulnerable, especially youth are to sort of uh, these extortion schemes online and how devastating it can be. Uh, You did bring up one that I thought was interesting, too, which was food insecurity, because I think, uh, you know, we know anecdotally that that's probably the case. But food insecurity seems to be an issue this year as well, for obvious reasons. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's very discouraging when we look at the new data because we had been seeing some progress being made in reducing levels of child poverty, but we're seeing an an increase over this past year and in particular around food insecurity for children and their families, a very sharp increase by 29%. You know, that's a lot of kids going to school hungry without a breakfast, perhaps not even a lunch to, to nourish their bodies or their minds. It means that not only are they going to be struggling in school, they're going to be facing issues around misbehavior. They're more likely to be disciplined in the classroom, perhaps even sent home. Um, and they're not going to be able to achieve their, their very best. Um, you know, these are very basic things that our kids need to survive and thrive. And these are not just acts of charity around, you know, obviously our many of our communities um, rise up to pr- provide um, things like food banks and shelters to, to meet these very basic needs for children. But, uh, it's shocking that a country as wealthy as ours, as prosperous as ours, is allowing so many of our kids to fall so far behind. I did want to talk about some of the solutions that were proposed in the report as well. But did you see any bright spots? Because there are some, there are some of course. I know this was focused on threats, but are there any, is there anything encouraging in this year's report that stood out to you? Well, really, when it comes to the top 10 threats, sadly, no, either things have remained fairly stagnant or in some cases um, gotten worse. Topics like child poverty and abuse um, and mental health have significantly declined. Uh, You know, for me, the bright spot is kids themselves. They are rising up as young leaders and change makers in their families and their schools. Many are even taking charge and helping to shape the, the policies at a provincial and federal level that affect them. And we have members of our Young Canadians Parliament who participated in this research, who care passionately about making a difference in their own lives and the lives of their peers, and who give their free time to you know, to raise their voices and, and to help drive change. They are young, they're creative, but they're also impatient. They, you know, they've seen these issues um, getting worse and worse over time. They deserve better, and you know, they're, they're speaking up for themselves and working you know, with adults as partners to try to find solutions. Right. And I, I, I imagine we're really still seeing the, the hangover effect of those of, of the years of, of the pandemic. I mean, I think we all everyone felt the impacts of the pandemic. But for young people, it must have been it's such a big proportion of their young lives that it must still be so acutely felt by them. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, perhaps it may be surprising to, to many Canadians to hear that, that the state of our nation's children was not good even before the pandemic began. Canada had been been sliding the, the, the rankings um, globally for children's well-being for many years. The pandemic simply accelerated things that were already going wrong and has just made it much worse. But even with pandemic restrictions being lifted, you know, with kids being back in school and a return to some sense of normalcy, kids are still very, you know, struggling. We saw the huge wave of the triple demic of COVID-19, the flu and influenza last fall, and we're now hearing health authorities warning of another wave of that this fall. You know, we need to be learning the lessons around what works for preventing illness for our children, ensuring they're vaccinated, you know, masking when in crowded indoor settings when when rates of infection are up. Um, you know, doing the things that we simple things that we know work that will help keep our kids healthy this fall as we go back to school. There were some solutions or at least some proposals within the report as well. You talked about a federal commissioner on children and youth. Well, uh, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, a children's commissioner exists in more than 60 countries around the world. They have been a proven and effective solution to really move the needle for children in countries rich and poor. Uh, they are basically you know, an, an ombudsperson for children to be a voice for kids. Kids can't vote. They don't have a voice in decisions that are being made about them. Uh, but a children's commissioner can actually hear directly from children. They can work with parents and teachers and frontline professionals, but also holding our government accountable, putting in place a national plan and a strategy to make life better for children, um, ensuring that resources are being spent wisely on effective solutions. Um, so, you know, this is one of the things we've been calling for, and we really hope to see our government taking action on that this fall. Right. And a new data strategy as well. I guess you you, you need to know what the problem is to tackle it properly. I mean, your report certainly puts out a lot of, you know, co- you know collates a lot of research out there, but you would want a new data strategy as well. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges of producing the Reason Canada report is that there isn't comparable data year over year. Our government doesn't collect it. You know, we are a bit of an outlier when it comes to many other wealthy nations in collecting health data on our broad population, let alone on children. Uh, so it's really important that we measure what matters, you know, tra- tracking what's happening around children's mental and physical health, disaggregating it based on gender, on race and ethnicity, urban and rural areas, so that we can actually track what's happening measure this year over year, um, be able to point to the problems and more importantly, point to the solutions. You know, we're going to see kids going back to school next week. It's that big week of the year, right? What would you like listeners to, to think about and when, you, when you're walking away from having done the sixth annual report? What do you think Canadians and, and everyone should know about kids as they, head, as they head back to another year of school? I think this report is really a wake-up call that our kids are struggling. There is a crisis hiding in plain sight. You know, maybe your child is doing okay, maybe your neighbor's child is doing okay, but far too many of our kids are falling behind. It can be very daunting when we look at all this data. There are many, many problems, but... You know, I think what's encouraging about this is that there are solutions that are proven and that are effective and that we as parents, as citizens, have power within our hands to make changes in our home, uh, you know, using the data around um, knowing what our children are vulnerable for to making ourselves more educated and having very honest conversations with our children about issues around abuse and um, their mental health topics like that, but also you know, using our voices as, as citizens to hold our government accountable, municipally, provincially, and federally. We have a lot of power as citizens, and we need to be speaking up for our children and demanding better. Well, Sarah, I, I wish uh, wish your child the best of luck with the return to school, and thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much. Have a good evening. 
Health officials in BC today say they have detected the first known Canadian case of a new variant of COVID-19 called BA286. Uh, the Centre for Disease Control confirmed it was found in a person in the Fraser Health region, east of Vancouver, who had not travelled outside the province. Uh, provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry from out here in BC and the Health Minister Adrian Dix said today that they are monitoring the variant, but it was not unexpected for it to show up in BC or in Canada generally. And uh, so far, there does not seem to be increased severity with this particular strain. The individual in this case is not hospitalized. They will continue to monitor monitor it. Uh, The BA286 was first detected in Denmark in July, of la- July just a month ago, and was deemed a variant under monitoring by the WHO on August 17th, so less than two weeks ago. Joining me now is Dr. Horacio Bach. He's a researcher at the Immunity Infe- and Infection Research Centre and a clinical assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Bach, thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. How are you doing? Very well. I mean, this was, I mean, we know that COVID is still here, but I think today was a reminder that it is indeed still here. Uh, tell me a bit about this variant. Well, this variant, as you mentioned, was um, uh, found in, in Denmark about one month ago. And we, the number of cases around the world is very small. We're talking about probably 15, 20, but it's very reasonable to think that there are much more because we don't test everyone as we used to test in the past. On top of that, this person you mentioned in Fraser Health um, Authority basically did in trouble. So it means that got this variant from someone that came from out of the country, basically. Right. So, yeah. Go ahead. So this, yeah, so, sorry. This variant, the the interesting point, you know, on the scientific side is that uh, has 34 new mutations. Just a reminder to the audience, when we see mutation, means that the proteins that the virus is producing are changing. In general, the conformation. And that is the reason that can escape the immune system because the antibodies are produced in our body according to the structure of the protein. But if there is a change here and there, it may escape. And that's happened with the latest uh, variant that we are we are seeing. I mean, all the Omicron derived variants, right? And I suppose that 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 has potentially an impact on those who've already had COVID and or are vaccinated, right? Well, uh, it's very early to make any assumption about the vaccine. We know that the vaccine we were going to receive be, uh, between mid uh, mid to end September. There is a new uh, vaccine that was developed and it will be available here, but. This vaccine is made against the previous variant, that is the XXB116. That is not the same line of these new viruses. So the viruses are, are evolving all the time, you know, and then uh, it will be very hard to get a vaccine that will cover all of them. But having the vaccine, more than likely you are protecting a certain degree that will keep you away from the hospital. That is something that we don't want. Right. What have we seen overall this summer with COVID? Because we haven't talked about it much, but I mean, again, it's out there. We know, we know I've, I've talked to people who've had it and uh, it's still there. I mean, it's still with us. Yeah, exactly. It's still here. And now we are coming, you know, um, we, we are entering the, 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 the cold weather as well. Um, in general, I think that the level of vaccination of immunity of people uh, in the in our in our in our area, basically, is probably the reason that we didn't see a very a pro a big problems. 
And on top of that, remember that uh, we have this um, uh, in the summertime, basically we are outside, outdoors, so the, the, trans- the transmissibility is very low in general. But now we have a new, um, a new variant that we don't know. It's, it's very early to say anything, so it's not that it's not going panic because we don't know if it's more transmissible uh, or, or uh, we cause deeper uh, problems or symptoms. Right now, that is the the situation and this under monitoring, basically. Right. And, and again, as Dr. Henry pointed out, it's no surprise that it was found in BC and in Canada. We know how COVID spreads. Uh, so the fact that it had been found even in limited numbers elsewhere in the world, we could anticipate that it would turn up on our shores sooner than later. Exactly. You know, the, the point is that the, today we travel all the time and, you know, it's very easy to bring from country to country. So there is no any more barriers or tests. So people are bringing that and then we will get the the. the Disease sooner or later will come, no matter what. Uh, just broadly, with, with the other variants that are still out there, heading into the fall, schools starting again very soon. Are there any concerns within the medical community about what's coming? We've been seeing more, I think we've been seeing more talk, at least, of, about about COVID of late. Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. Basically, we are in this situation now that COVID is in, in, the, in the rise, in the special, especially in the U.S. as well. And um, again, we don't know what will happen in the school, but definitely all these kids that they are with uh, uh, underlying diseases or immunosuppressed, definitely it, it is recommended to, to mask, you know, because that's a way that we keep the virus away and it's proven that they work. So just a simple surgical a mask and keeping the basic stuff like, you know, sanitation, keeping distance, that will help a lot to reduce the transmissibility. Right. And you mentioned the boosters are arriving too. I know there's been, I've received emails uh, of late reminding me about about the latest round of boosters. Uh, what's happening in terms of vaccinations these days broadly for, for in Canada? Um, I don't have exactly the numbers, but People in, gen- in, in general, every six, after six months, you get the reminder that, you know, it's time for you to, to take a booster. And some people just got the two or three uh, doses, basically, not booster, because it's, it's a little uh, complicated to say bo- but booster number one, two, three, four. So let's say the doses. Right. And, but still, since the level of immunity in the, in the population is high, because if I remember well, it was almost uh, over 80% of people who were vaccinated in Canada with one or two doses, no matter what. And that is a barrier for the virus because you, the person is vaccinated, more than likely will contain the virus and the virus is not going to multiply uh, or replicate or be transmitted unless you have a new variant that is escaping. So that's what's happened with the XX, uh, uh, XBB116. But mm-hmm. uh, it, Still, this new variant we have not detected yet in water, in, in sewage, means that it's just arriving here. So, again, we don't know what will happen, but definitely most of the, the variants we have is, is this, uh, what is called EG5 and XBB116, and that is the most. Uh, on top of that, we don't, uh, basically, uh, we don't um, test every person that is positive. You know, it's, I guess that this person was randomly tested because you need to go to the genome sequence. You have to sequence the genes to right. see it's the same or not. There is no symptom or external feature that we say, oh, you have the Omicron, you have the Delta. You know, it's just all the same. 
Right. So I guess for the time being, as far as BA286 is concerned, the one that was found in the first case in Canada, found in BC, reported today, we're really in the wait and see mode to see just exactly what this variant will do. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I won't be surprised that there is already in other parts of Canada, but we, we, we don't test again all the positive cases, probably people that are going to the hospital or something or randomly, but I'm sure it is or it's very reasonable to think that we have already this, this variant around. All right. Well, Dr. Bach, thank you so much for your information on this. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Have a great evening. The summer is usually a pretty sleepy time in politics, right? There's the barbecue circuit. Everyone's out and about sort of just talking. People don't pay much attention. At the same time, it is a period when people get together, right? You probably see family you haven't seen in a while. Maybe you see friends you haven't seen in a while. And oftentimes sort of the topics, the hot topics that are circulating in and around politics come up in those environments, right? It's a pretty interesting phenomenon. Um, so... How to explain then, and perhaps that helps explains it, uh, helps explain it, a pretty dismal few months for the Liberal government, at least according to a series of public opinion polls. Now, this one from Abacus Data is harsh, but pretty consistent with what other pollsters have been uncovering of late. It shows that the Liberals and Justin Trudeau have 26% popular support. That's 12 points behind the Conservatives and Pierre Polyev at 38. The NDP and Jagmeet Singh are third with 19. No change there. So really, the shifting you're seeing is kind of going on at the top. The numbers aren't any rosier regionally for the Liberals, trailing the Conservatives in every part of the country except Quebec, where they lead the Conservatives but are behind the Bloc Québécois. They're behind the NDP in BC, by the way. One number that really stood out to me in that abacus poll um, and I'd like to see more around that and, and I'll be paying attention to those polls coming up is the Liberals are third behind the NDP and the Conservatives with those aged 19, 18 to 29 and 30 to 44 so anyone under the age of 45 the Liberals are third behind the Conservatives and the NDP 56% of those polled think Justin Trudeau should step down before the next election, although only 21% who voted Liberal in 2021 say he should go. So what gives? Well, according to many, housing gives. And the Conservatives have spent the summer attacking the Trudeau government over issues such as affordability and specifically on housing. It's not been helped until uh, recently by the inability of, of the Prime Minister really to be seen to be tackling the issue with the kind of urgency you might expect, at least in his language, earlier this summer even pointing out that housing isn't technically a federal responsibility. I'll be blunt as well. Housing isn't a primary federal responsibility. It's uh, not something that we have direct carriage of, but it is something that we can and must help with. Indeed. Now, that isn't technically untrue, but it's really not. You don't want to be qualifying things when you're being hammered by the opposition on something that is clearly important to Canadians. But how are conservative strategists feeling about these poll numbers? What's behind them? And are they sustainable? Ken Bosenkul has played a senior strategic role and policy role in four national election campaigns under Stephen Harper. He was chief of staff to former BC Premier Christy Clark. The list goes on and on. And Bosenkul, founding partner of Meredith Bosenkul Policy, policy Advisors, joins me now with more on this. Thanks so much for your time. Good to be here. It's interesting how polls work. There's sort of a, you know, it's a nudge. You see a bit of a nudge, a bit of a nudge. It all looks very static. And all of a sudden, over the course of a few months, the polls start to really shift. And I'm wondering if you're sitting in the liberal shoes right now and you're looking at these, a series of polls now that have come out over the past month or so, what are you thinking? Uh, uh oh. Um, 
<laughs> Look, I have a I have a long weekend uh, theory about polling, which is people start thinking that they want to change their mind about which party they support, but they don't want to really change that, their mind until they hear other people talking about it or they get together with family or friends or whatever. And I think that over the course of the summer, there's been lots of conversations with people saying, I'm getting a little tired of this Trudeau guy and he's not really talking about what I want to talk about. And maybe it's time to give another guy a look. And then they give the other guy a look and it's like, wow, he's really talking about housing. He's really talking about affordability. And I think, I think, you know, cause you can't really point to one big event. I don't think that happened over the summer, but I think it's the course of those, those long weekend conversations that people have with family and friends. And they're like, Oh, I've got, you know, I've got my cousin and my brother and my buddy down the street who all say they'd give Pierre, Pierre Pauly a second look. I guess that opens the door permission structure for me to do the same. And I think there's been a lot of those kind of conversations over the summer. The thing I found really interesting in that in some of the more recent polling was the drop in support to third place. Uh, for the Liberals, behind the NDP and well behind the Conservatives, amongst a younger age group, the same people who put Justin Trudeau into power uh, eight years ago. Yeah, I mean, I was I was in the Conservative campaign uh, room where we set a target for the number of votes we needed in the 905 region, which decides governments in Canada, along with the 604, Lower Mainland and BC. And when the votes started coming in, we got as many votes in 2015 as we did in 2011, and we were kind of happy about that. But when, when we looked over the other column, it turned out that a whole bunch of 18 to 30-year-olds, uh, instead of coming out to vote at like 35 or 40% voter turnout, they were at like 50 to 55% voter turnout. And that's what made the difference. And so now you've got this whole cohort of people that in 2015 were 18 to 30, are now 28 to 40, and they're going... Uh, can't afford a house, uh, groceries are too expensive, and who's talking about it? So the I don't know if it's irony is the right word, but the interesting thing from a political strategy point of view is that this cohort decided an election in 2015, and frankly, we went into that election with the Liberals in third place, I would just remind you. Uh, they decided the election in 2015, and now the very people that made Justin Trudeau prime minister appear to be the very people that could make Pierre Polyev prime minister. And I just find that fascinating because usually it's, you know, usually uh, conservatives do better among older people. And so it's, it's, there's been some interesting demographic shifts. And I think this housing issue has just been very poorly played by the prime minister and his team. Yeah. And, and, and in many ways, very well played by Pierre, Pierre Polyev and his team, because one thing that's always been impressive about Pierre Polyev beyond his ability to communicate, and this is nothing, this is even if you're politically agnostic, you can appreciate this, is his discipline. It's his discipline in repeating the same message over and over and over again. So if you missed it yesterday and he's talking about housing and gatekeepers and so on, chances are you'll see it tomorrow. If you miss it tomorrow, you'll see it the day after. Yeah, look, I, I've I've advised a number of leaders over the course of my career. And one of the things that is the hardest to tell them is you have to say the same thing until it makes you sick and then say it a million times more. <laughs> and that's a hard thing for, for a lot of politicians to do. But Pierre, as you just said, is a master at it. You know, he, he talks about other issues and whether we agree with all of those is beside the point. But there's no question that at the center of his communications these days, it's affordability, housing, affordability, housing. And if you look at the polls and what people think is most worrying them, it's affordability and housing. And if you look over at the other guy, Justin Trudeau, I don't he literally said a few weeks ago, like it was gobsmacking to me. He literally said, 
uh, not my responsibility, that housing thing, you know, that's not really a federal responsibility. And I can tell you whether that's correct from a federalism point of view or not. If you go into an election where housing is number one issue and one guy saying not my responsibility, and the other guy saying I'm going to fix it. I can tell you where people are going to move. Yeah, I had a I'm entitled to my entitlements moment when I heard him say that, you know, <laughs> I just thought, what? Like, I mean, even if it is technically true, and this is where this all gets lost sometimes, but just don't say it that way. I mean, really, he's already being accused of being tone deaf on this issue. And here he is sort of saying, hey, well, you know, it's not really my problem. Well, the interesting thing, you know, like, again, I was in the 2015 war room and we got a bit of government-itis and we got a, you know, the Harper team was like, oh, we've been doing a good job and Canadians will reward us for that. And across the aisle was this guy saying, you know, I'm going to fix your democracy. I'm going to fix the middle class. I'm going to fix child benefits. I'm going to fix all these things. And we were like, oh, we've done a good job. So give it to us back. And it kind of feels like a role reversal right now. You got Pierre Polyev. Um, he's not even, it's interesting to me because he's not even yet, I assume he will, but he's, he has not yet rolled out big solutions to these problems, but he's got the tone right. He's got the, he's, he's identifying that people are worried about something and he's got the tone right. And, and on the other side of the aisle, they just, they just don't, not, they're not, they can't get the tone right because they're not even talking about it, which is weird. Ken, when you look at some, one of the things you, you wrote something right after the 20, uh, the last election that sort of said, wait a second, you know, if, if they think this was a victory, that's going to come back to haunt them. And it feels like part of that is what's been going on. They've really seemed to have been unable to find and to be able to tout their own successes. The liberals have um, been able to connect on some of the issues that people really care about. Uh, it feels like they've just gotten lost and then they go back to the well, right? They go back to those sort of identity issues that they talk about a lot, you know, gun control, which is nothing wrong with gun control, but those, you know, you can tell they're going back to their bag of tricks. Yeah. I think, I just think they've lost the plot a little bit and, you know, I, I think they have some big things that they can crow about in their past. I mean, the child benefits, which built on the child benefits that Harper brought in. Harper brought in massive child benefits in 2015, increasing the amount we spent from four to 18 billion. And the liberals increased it to 22 and refocused it on poor people. And we had a massive reduction in child poverty. And that's a huge thing to crow about, but it's done. It's in the past, and we're not going to increase child benefits now from 22 to 42 billion. We need, but we have a housing crisis. So I think. I just think they've misread the concerns of Canadians and they've just gotten a little too comfortable. I mean, being prime minister and governing and traveling on the world and going to foreign things, it's, you know, it's an interesting job, but you only get that job if you manage to get reelected and getting reelected uh, after nine years is a very, very difficult thing. And I think they're at risk of being caught in that trap. Yeah. And again, winning a fourth election is, is a tough one, as, as everyone has found out over the years. And and indeed, one of the things that, you know, that famous question, am I better off now than I was eight years ago? And I suspect there are a proportion of people, not necessarily you know, is, is, are, is the government default for this. In fact, the federal government really isn't, is rarely default for a lot of this stuff. But people are going to look back and say, well, I don't think I'm better off than I am eight years ago. So why not look at somebody else? I think that's exactly right. In fact, I think eight years ago, a lot of people in some ways said, you know, got through the financial crisis and Harper did a good job and everything else. But now is the time to be a bit more ambitious and look at this guy over here is promising new things on child benefits and new things on democracy and blah, 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 blah. So maybe we can afford to take a chance on him. I think we're in a little different situation now, which is what you just identified is people are like, I'm not sure. Uh, I feel better. And especially that sort of uh, 28 to 40 crowd or the people that are trying to buy a house. 
you know, they may have, if they have kids, they have increased in child benefits and they're surely thankful for that. But if they can't afford to buy a house where their job is, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big worry. And that's a, you know, our polling is telling us that's a number one issue. And Pierre Polyev is talking about it every day. And Justin Trudeau has told us it's not his problem. Right. Uh, what What would you have, if you're Pierre Polyev, would you, I mean, he's he wanders in and out of sort of identity politics stuff. He was supporting Roman Baber over the weekend about something about vaccine mandates and, and transplants. He's talked, obviously, he's waded into this issue over parental right to know when it comes to gender identity at schools. If you're him and you have this large block of people out there that seem to be pretty tuned into what you're talking about on certain things, do you stay away from some of the more identity politics stuff? Do you Do you try to back off or is that part and parcel of him bringing new voters to the polls come next election? Well, I think there's two things Pierre Polyev has to do, and, and his, he has a calculation of when the election's going to be. But the first thing he has to do is raise a lot of money. And a lot of the things he's talking about that, that maybe some of the voters would get a bit squeamish about, he's, I think he's trying to narrow cast those to the people who give him money. And weird people like you and me who pay an unhealthy amount of attention to politics will see a lot of that stuff. But most people won't. And, you know, he's raising money at a clip. He's raising money in this year uh, as much as the party has in the past in election years. So he's got 10 to 15. Like he'll be able to run two national campaigns, one before the campaign starts and one when the campaign goes. And that matters. I think the way in which he can communicate now with that kind of money, that that will matter. But at the end of the day, I think we touched on this earlier he has to stick to the issues people care about. And at some point he's, I, I expect him to tone down the other stuff on fundraising. when he feels he's got enough money. Of course, you never feel like you have enough in politics, but, but he'll tone that down and focus on the issues people care about. But let me just say one more thing about that. I mean, to date, he has mostly gotten the tone, right? He is mostly trying to say to people, you have a problem and I'm going to fix it. He hasn't yet come up with solutions for those problems. And I think that's okay. Uh, I think he can wait until the election until people are really paying attention to come forward with solutions. But there's a little bit of a risk because I think the Trudeau gang is sufficiently scared, uh, has enough of the people in that that office have said, uh-oh, that they're going to roll out a pretty big housing package this fall. And if the public suddenly goes, oh, Trudeau hasn't said much about it, but I really like his new package, and Pierre waits another six months or a year to come up forward with solutions. There's a potential reversal there. I mean, I've probably answered your next question, which is what should Trudeau do? And my answer is a massive housing package in the fall economic statement. But I, but I think Pierre's got to do a calculation about doing more than just identifying with the issue, which he's done a fantastic job about and think about solutions. So I hope his back office people, his policy nerds and gnomes are coming up with some pretty bold and interesting ideas on how to actually solve the problem. Yeah, those transitions are always tough to keep the momentum going. Ken Bosengul, uh, you read my mind. That was exactly my last question. So here we are. Thanks so much for your time. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, very, very important day today for Toronto FC. Um, the introduction of a coach who, who needs no introduction with Canadian soccer fans. Um, and we look forward to... Um, you know, redefining a new chapter in Toronto FC's history. And so without any further ado, our new head coach, John Herdman. There you have it, Toronto FC President Bill Manning today making it official, a former Team Canada men's soccer team coach and women's national team coach uh, in the past. John Herdman is indeed taking over at 
the MLS Toronto FC franchise, a team that's fallen on some pretty hard times of late. He's got a big task ahead of him there. Now, normally that would be of particular interest uh, in soccer circles, right? We would talk about this on a sports show. But the reason why it's it's a big deal it's a big deal is because we're hosting the World Cup. We're co-hosting the World Cup in less than three years. And John Herdman has sort of had this real uh, transformational impact, not only in the women's team, which he led uh, to two bronze medals uh, at the 2012 and 2016 Olympics, and they've gone on to great things as well, but also the men's team uh, in his five years in charge of them to their first World Cup in 36 years. You'll remember when they qualified, we finished on top of our group in the CONCACAF group. Uh, we didn't do as well as expected at the World Cup, uh, but it was still a big deal. He's helped take this team to new heights. We have this, you know, probably one of the best squads we've ever had, if not the best. And we're co-hosting in two and a half years or a little bit less. Um, and that's a really big deal. The world's going to be watching. This is the pinnacle, one of the pinnacle sporting events in the world, right? All eyes on us and, and the U.S. and Mexico. So, of course, a lot of eyes will be on the Canadian team. And now we've lost the coach. And part of the issue is that it also says a lot about what's going on behind the scenes. He was asked about it today, John Herdman, obviously, because when the World Cup wrapped up in Qatar uh, late last year, he seemed kind of enthusiastic about, about being at the helm of this team heading into a Canadian World Cup. There's another level to come from this team. It needs freshness. It needs a different voice. There's an element of that. But also the organization. I think the organization is undergoing a level of leadership change. And for me, this is the time. You, you feel that in your gut. You feel it in your heart. That there's a moment. It's time to step off. Yeah, I mean, he felt it in his gut. He felt it in his heart. It was time to step off. I mean, getting getting to be the coach of a team hosting a World Cup is a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, there are probably some other reasons why he would leave to go to Toronto FC. There's, you know, club, you know, being a, a club manager gives you better opportunities perhaps elsewhere if he wants to go back to England where he's from and so on. But still, you know, this was going to be a big deal. And some of the cracks were starting to show after a 2 nothing loss to the U.S. in the CONCACAF Nations Cup final a few months back. Herdman spoke frankly about the impact of Canada soccer, the governing bodies, money issues saddled with a bad deal on the TV side and with, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated, but they're in tough shape financially. Players have complained about preparation and resources. Uh, Herdman had been vocal about it, and he challenged Canada soccer to get real about hosting the World Cup. We, we've got to figure this out financially. There's, we've got to get serious about winning a World Cup. When you play at home, you get a chance to win it. And we're not serious. We've brought a World Cup to our country, and we're not serious about winning it. There you have it. So you could tell, I mean, this was a few months back, but you could sort of see the writing was on the wall in terms of perhaps him leaving. So what does this mean for Team Canada, the men's team in 2026? And what does it mean for the rest of us? Because we're hosting this. And of course, when you, when you co-host a World Cup, you want your team to do well. And it feels like we have all the puzzles. You know, many of the pieces of the puzzle are in place. We have a talented squad. But now we've kind of lost the coach. So maybe that's an opportunity. Maybe it isn't. Where does it leave us? Joining me now is Alan McDougall. He's author of Contested Fields, A Global History of Modern Football. Alan, thank you so much. My pleasure. This has been quite the week. I mean, certainly for, for Canadian soccer fans, because um, I guess we kind of have turned our gaze away after the Women's World Cup ended. And we're kind of into that time of the summer where people are maybe watching the MLS, maybe watching the beginnings of the English Premier League and other European leagues. 
But big news, John Herdman, who kind of was the face of Canadian football for, a, for Canadian soccer for years, is gone. He's gone to uh, Toronto FC. Yeah, pretty shocking news in one way. I suppose in another way, less shocking. I mean, I suppose it's shocking in the sense that, as you say, Herdman has been the face of Canadian soccer, men's and women's, from a coaching point of view, for well over a decade. Um, but less surprising in the sense that, I mean, we haven't really heard much from Herdman yet since the decision was announced yet, but less surprising in the sense of the state of Canada soccer at the moment and just how difficult it is to work given the financial and other constraints of the uh, National Soccer Federation. I mean, I'm sure all this will come out in the wash, but that feels like surely the major part of the story here, that Herdman will walk away to join the worst team in the MLS um, and leave the Canadian men's national team, you know, less than two years or two and a bit years before Canada co-hosts the World Cup. Yeah, that that part of it to me, uh, just the prestige of bringing, especially a team that he's already that he knows well, a team that maybe perhaps underperformed, but in a very difficult group at the last World Cup in Qatar. Now they're playing at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this felt like a golden opportunity that, that no coach would want to, no manager would want to turn down, and yet here he is. And and you can just imagine what sort of things were going on behind the scenes that would lead him to prefer TFC to uh, leading Canada into the next World Cup as hosts. Yeah, I mean, I think for 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 a coach like Herman, he's obviously an ambitious guy. He's been coaching in a national team structure for a long time. So I think a move into club management in the MLS or perhaps in a European league would have been in an inevitable trajectory. But you probably see that after 2026, as you suggested. But I think, you know, all of the behind the scenes problems that both the men's and the women's soccer programs in Canada have faced, the huge debts of Canada soccer, I think over $6 million, you know, applying for loans here and there, having to cancel exhibition matches in September. I mean, I think the working conditions for Herbman must have got so difficult that the offer from TFC, who have the highest payroll in the MLS, you know, and and there's potential there to do a transformative story. I mean, that offer perhaps was the right one at the right time, despite TFC's current troubles. Right. I mean, Herdman spoke about it this a little while ago. I think it was all about not playing enough exhibition matches. Clearly, this is mm-hmm. a team that's going to have to stay in game form ahead of the World Cup. And they don't have a lot of exhibitions this year. They just have the one. And they were mm-hmm. sort of fundraising to charter flights. And you could just hear the frustration. He essentially said Canada's about to host the World Cup and we're not taking it seriously. Yeah. And... um I mean, Canadian fans, are we've never had a better product on the field. Uh, and yet here we are with what seems like a mess in the background. Mm-hmm. Is is that because there's more scrutiny on what's happening in the background? Or is there really a huge mess in the background that is sort of belied by the talent on the field? Yeah, I think there's a huge discrepancy between the talent on the field, both in the men's and women's teams. Um, but particularly the men's team has improved markedly under Herbman, obviously qualifying for the World Cup and performing, you know, reasonably respectably, I would say, scoring a goal as well for the first time at a World Cup. Um, So, yes, there's definitely greater scrutiny because both men's and women's programs are now pretty successful. But I think there's just clearly a sort of institutional incompetence there, financial mismanagement that means that, as Herbman suggests, you know, Canada is hosting or co-hosting the World Cup uh, and it's having to get out sort of a begging bowl in order to find enough exhibition matches to play to be in good shape for the tournament. Because as hosts, the problem always is that you're not qualifying for the tournament, so you can get rusty very easily. You're not playing competitive matches against high-quality opposition in pressure situations. So if the Federation is so broke that it can't organise 
high quality matches on a regular basis until 2026, uh, you can see why Herman might have, it might have been the straw that broke the camel's back for Herman. And he just thought, you know what, I'll take my chances with TFC. Uh, given that, do you think there are any sort of managers that people would recognize out there who would want to take a chance on Team Canada right now? Well, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I was thinking uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think the short answer is it's difficult to see it being anything other than an appointment from within ex- within existing Canadian coaching structures, mostly for the financial reasons we've been discussing. I mean, Canada soccer is still in a very parlous financial situation. And if you look at some of the available international soccer coaches, and obviously there's always a sort of high-profile group of coaches who are between jobs, um, Roberto Mancini, for example, the former Manchester City manager, the former Italian national manager, has just agreed a no doubt lucrative deal to become Saudi Arabia's national team coach. So right. I don't think Canada is going to be competing in that kind of ballpark in terms of um, attracting managers. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where they go. You know, there's an interim appointment at the moment. I think a high profile name um, with a, a good coaching CV. Uh, maybe an internationally recognized figure could help Canada soccer restore a bit of um, respect, maybe among the players as much as anything else, but how they'd arrange that financially uh, is hard to know. So at the moment, the men's team and the coaching situation in this long lead up to the world cup looks a bit of a mess. It does. And, and, uh, you know, I think expectations will naturally be somewhat high. I mean, we've been used to watching this team win. We're not going to watch them qualify. So we won't get that rush as we did last time around when they were qualifying for Qatar. But is it, does, do you think the men's team then is in trouble for this World Cup that we're about to co-host? I mean, a lot, football, like most professional sports, a lot can change in a month or six months or 12 months. So we're a long way out from the World Cup, so a lot can change. At the moment, I would say there's a danger that the the talent in this generation of Canadian players um, will not be met with the requisite support off the pitch, which means it might underachieve. Um, it's a golden opportunity to host or co-host the World Cup, to, to raise the profile of the game internationally, to get the next generation of kids interested in the sport, to really grow the game. But if you don't have the money to kind of put into national teams' travel arrangements or further down in the grassroots of the sport, then it does feel like you might be wasting an opportunity. And I think there's also on the Canadian men's team specifically, you know, you could always um, sort of do a sort of underdog story for that team in previous years, right? They were, they were up against Mexico in the US in qualifying, or even at the World Cup this year, the mm-hmm. underdog narrative was there. And I, I sometimes felt it was a bit overplayed, actually, because if you looked at the Canadian team on paper, it was a pretty decent team with players who played across Europe. Alfonso Davis, obviously, the most the best known of them and so i think the, the men's team is in that transition from being an underdog to a team that's climbed the fifa rankings and is at a pretty respectable position but that brings more pressure of course and with the program being in such a difficult situation financially i think that just adds to the pressure so yeah i mean we're a couple of years away more than but at the moment it's a pretty difficult situation for the men's program i'd say 
Alan McDougall is author of Contested Fields, a global history of modern football. We're talking, we've been talking about John Herdman quitting uh, Team Canada, uh, the men's side, ahead of the 2026 World Cup, which Canada, of course, is co-hosting. We've been talking about some of the financial struggles that Soccer Canada is having, and that spills over, obviously, to the women's team, who had a relatively disappointing uh, Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand that just wrapped up. It was the opposite for Spain, who had never really had much success at the Women's World Cup and then won the whole thing, beating England in the final. At the end of that match, uh, the Spanish football president, uh, then his name is Luis Rubiales, kissed uh, their national star, Jenny Hermoso, on the lips, and it's caused a huge scandal. Um, Alan, when you look at this, I mean, it was such a bizarre moment, and he's refusing to go, and somehow it's it's a lot of the things that, that women who play football don't like about women's football all sort of came to a head, it felt like, in that one instant. Yeah, absolutely. It feels, I mean, this has been called in Spain, Spain's Me Too moment. Um, so th- there's a sense in which this obviously goes much beyond the world of women's soccer and touches on a lot of wider issues. And it's worth saying, I think, at the outset that that women's soccer players around the world in many national team programs, not just in Spain, have, have reported on incidents of threatening behaviour, sexually suggested player from uh, behaviour from coaches over many decades. And this feels like a bit of a culmination of it. Um, it's also just a kind of a, the sense of sort of almost digging a hole and, and keeping digging here is is quite astonishing from the Spanish Football uh, Federation and Luis Rubiales particularly. I mean, you know, to backtrack to the end of last week, Rubiales was, you know, there was a meeting of the Spanish Football Federation. Uh, he was expected to resign after it emerged that Jenny Hermoso had said that this kiss was not something she welcomed and, you know, the political storm was was coming Rubiales's way. But instead of falling on his sword, he doubled down and um, had this bizarre rant about fake feminists, um, played out, we should say, to loud applause from the Federation delegates to whom he was speaking, which included uh, the national team coaches for the men and the women. And then the story's just got stranger and stranger. You know, as we speak, he still hasn't gone. Uh, he's still in his position. The Spanish Football Federation is is threatening to sue left, right and centre, including Jenny Hermoso. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, a very strange story, but in, in some ways it's, it's, it's not so strange for anyone who's, you know, been around stories related to women in sport, but not just in sport, this kind of controlling sexually aggressive behavior from men is, is nothing new. Um, we think the situation might have changed in 2023 in terms of reactions to it, but as Rubiales's reaction suggests, they're still in positions of power you know, a huge sense of entitlement. Right. Spain's top criminal court yesterday launched a preliminary investigation into whether the actions amounted to sexual assault. One of the things that is is unfortunate about it, I, I, and I think, and this this is, you know, to, to Jenny Hermoso's point, is that it was a wonderful tournament. It was a really great tournament. And that final was a great final. England were great. Spain were really impressive. And all of a sudden, a week, you know, a couple of weeks later, this is the story. And it feels like maybe it's a necessary one. Uh, but it's a, that action by Rubiales kind of robbed the Women's World Cup in some ways of the of the glory it should be basking in right now. Yeah, I mean, when we look back on the tournament, which as you rightly say, was I think a big success, um, you know, good crowds, just some high quality games, especially towards the end. I mean, Spain's victory will look more and more astonishing in the record books, I think, because not only did we have the whole Rubiales uh, 
kissing incident, which we should also add, you know, he also celebrated Spain's victory by lewdly grabbing his crotch in the in the, the VIP box. I mean, just bizarre behavior all around. Um, but going into the tournament, there was um, a huge um, dispute between the federation and the coach of the team, Jorge Villar, and many of the women's players. I mean, basically, a lot of the players either refused to play for him and didn't join the squad or played under duress during the tournament. So the fact that Spain's team won um, is, is pretty miraculous, given all the political storm uh, around it and the fact that it was essentially in, in a civil war with its own football federation. Um and you're right, it detracts from the story of um, another tournament that shows, you know, the brilliant growth of the women's game globally in the last decade or more. And the final in particular, you know, it was it was really fascinating to see um, the Spanish women's team, you know, with these technically adept players um, fully deserving the victory against England in the final, should have won um, by more than one goal, I think. Hermoso actually missed a penalty in the second half. Um, to see that then overshadowed by this sort of political grandstanding and chauvinism is is more than depressing. Although I think, you know, if we look in the bigger picture, maybe there's a turning a turning point that can happen here because I think there's a lot of evidence in Spanish football culture, the institutional sexism and also some institutional racism. If we look at the history of the men's game recently, uh, is it, proving difficult to root out. So maybe that can be a transformative moment. But yeah, for the women's players from the Spanish team who just want to celebrate winning, um, this has been a horrible, horrible sideshow. Well, Alan, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Much appreciated. My pleasure. We don't need no education, right? Well, we're about to get an education on how you take that song and use a computer computer model to reconstruct a snippet of it by reading the brain activity of people actually listening to that song. How would you do that? It's a new study published this month in a journal called PLOS Biology. It's uh, participants with electrodes on their brains listen to another brick in the wall part one, I should say, part one, because we were playing you part two from the rock band's 1979 album, The Wall. Uh, researchers then used the computer model to convert the electrode signals into audio. Uh, here's what it sounds like. Have a listen. It's amazing how much if you play the original, even part two, if you play the original first and listen to that again, you can actually pick it up. If you play it cold, it's a little bit harder, but play the two together and you can actually kind of hear that another brick in the wall in there. So why was it done and what does it mean? Because it does tell us a lot about the fascinating thing that is the brain of which we understand not nearly enough. Uh, Ludovic Bellier is a neuroscientist at the University of California, Berkeley, and co-author of the study that looked into this, that created this, and he joins me now. Ludovic, thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. This is a really, I mean, this has had got a lot of coverage, I'm sure you know, because I'm sure people have been chasing you for weeks now <laughs> to talk about this. But what an interesting experiment. And how did it work? Thank you. Yeah, it was thanks to machine learning, uh, which is able to learn automatically the relationships between the acoustics of the song and the neural activity elicited by listening to the song. Right. So in other words, machine AI, you sort of, they start to be able to read what, what the brain is hearing. Um, that sounds, that sounds hard to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. There were uh, lots of pre-processing of the data. There's 
like a motto in machine learning, AI called garbage in, garbage out. So we first right. had to really carefully uh, prepare the data to enter the machine learning models. Uh, and once uh, it was done, there was also lots of tuning of the models in order to make it sound like a recognizable song. Uh, but yeah, that was like a huge relief and, and a thrill when it finally sounded like a recognizable song. It did. Uh, tell me a bit about those who were listening to the song, because I understand there were some some particularities about who it was that this group was, this group of 29, I think, who were listening to uh, to Big Floyd. Yes, absolutely. So it's it's really interesting how you uh, phrase it, because there's some particularity, but it's not linked to how the, they perceive music or speech, right? Uh, right. Patients with epilepsy, uh, and uh, especially uh, refractory or drug-resistant epilepsy. Uh, so about 1% of people in the U.S. Uh, have epilepsy, and amongst those 1%, about 20% develop drug-resistant epilepsy, which means that the drugs are not enough anymore to control their seizures. And then there's a process that can be done by neurosurgeons and epileptologists, uh, which is to put electrodes at the surface on their, of their brain to locate the origin of the epileptic foci. It's called the origin of the seizures in the cortical tissue uh, and potentially uh, remove that surgically to relieve them from um, epilepsy. Uh, and when the patients have the electrodes covering their brain, they are for uh, about a week at the hospital without the medication in order to get seizures so that the neurologists can locate the seizure origins. At that time, we ask the patient whether they would like to volunteer uh, in research. And in that case, it was just listening to a three-minute song. So it was a pretty nice way to like spare their time. Right. Did you give them an option? Did they request another brick in the wall or did you choose that for another reason? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, so the uh, experimenters who recorded uh, the data between 2008 and 2015 at the Albany Medical Center in upstate New York, uh, they were big fans of Pink Floyd. So that's why they proposed that song in particular. They also recorded uh, Another Week in the World Part 2, but it was only done in a few patients. So not enough data to train the models there. Right. And I played part two. We actually played part one last night because I was getting I'm getting confused between the two. They are somewhat similar, although part one is obviously a lot yeah. slower. Right. So it's not. Uh, what's, uh, let's let's play it again. We'll have listeners have another l listen to what what the final product of another brick in the wall. Part one, as heard uh, by one's brain. It's so clear right there, Ludovic, when, when that one little section is, is, is what's you've, now I've heard it about 25 times, but that one little section right. <laughs> is so clear. What is the brain doing? What, what is it? Because this is clearly about, about how the brain uh, perceives music, right? Right, exactly. And that was the endeavor of that research, for sure. There was the applied part, uh, but we are nowhere as close as uh, an application, as you might have heard, like last week, colleagues at UCSF and also... Uh, Berkeley and uh, Stanford reconstructed speech in patients with ALS, for instance. It's a direct application. For us, it's just paving the way towards uh, applications and namely including prosodic elements, the melody of speech, into speech decoding devices. We might touch that point later on. Um, yeah. 
And, and in that sense, I mean, I guess what you, that, that speaks to the far broader uh, implications of this. Is that this wasn't simply to, to see if you could do it. There are some implications for this in the future for the way that the brain works, right? How it sends signals, and it could help in other, in other forms as well. Yes, exactly. So uh, here we wanted to understand the neural code for music perception. Uh, and we knew basically which regions would be involved, the auditory cortices, etc. But we didn't know exactly how they would respond to the music. Uh, so that's why we uh, trained lots of models to try to figure out which parts were responding uh, to which elements of the music. And it was really interesting, for instance, we identify one subpart of the superior temporal zeros, that's a well-known region to process complex auditory stimuli, that was specifically tuned to the rhythmic guitar at 6.66 hertz, the 16th note of the rhythm guitar. So we saw that really clear pattern popping out in the encoding models, which instruct us on the exact relationship between the acoustics of the song and the neural activity. Um, that was a new uh, first time we saw that uh, specific subregion popping out. Right. So that famous rhythm, rhythmic guitar lick in another brick in the wall, the dun, 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 they could hear, you could see the brain actually listening to that or reacting to it, a part of the brain. Exactly. And we could see that it elicited activity in a very accurate region and not everywhere at all in an auditory region, but even more specifically in a subpart of that well-known auditory region. So that was really interesting to see. Right. Where, would you t where do you take this research now? So there are several follow-ups for sure. Uh, one that's very um, simple follow-up will be to apply the same predictive modeling approach, the same machine learning models, same analysis uh, to the lower uh, parts of the neural activity. You might have heard of the theta waves, uh, of the theta oscillation, alpha, beta, etc. Uh, and here in that research, in that paper, we focused on the high frequency activity, which, the, which is the very uh, high end of the spectrum of neural activity. We might get some additional uh, information about the musical elements in those lower frequency uh, activity. Uh, and so we can apply the same modeling approach, only replacing the neural activity with a lower frequency version of it. And it might be uh, able to highlight new subregions and new tuning to specific musical elements. Wow. And I gather you could also put this to work even even further to sort of, I mean, for people who can't, who can't speak, right? It, it, we can sort of, this, the brain can speak for them, which I know that that's probably not the scientific way of explaining it, but it is a really fascinating aspect of this. Right, exactly. Yeah, the fact that we could get even from the right uh, auditory cortex, while language is uh, really left localized most of the time, um, we, we could get the vocals uh, reconstructed. Uh, it's really telling. Uh, and uh, in terms of application, uh, reconstructing the, the text only, just the words, uh, is already a huge breakthrough uh, for patients with impaired communication, like ALS or Locking syndrome, for instance. But on top of that, uh, not only allowing these patients with uh, brain-computer interfaces, uh, and it's not right now, right? It will be years from now, but eventually allowing them not only to um, produce some words like what they want to say, but also how they want to pronounce it and include some intonation, some affect, some emotion, which can drastically change the, the meaning they might want to convey to their, their loved ones. That might be a huge accomplishment. Wow. 
did you play that back that brainwave version to the people who participated in the in the study did they ever get to hear it uh, I'm not sure about that. Maybe they are hearing it now because uh, there's been some media uh, attention. So I, I hope secretly that some of them are uh, rem- remembering that they participate in that research. Uh, and I want to thank them for their time, if it is the case, because uh, it's, it's really a unique opportunity for researchers to see the human brain in activity with unique precision. Uh, But uh, I don't know, it's been like a while uh, that I was recorded, started being recorded 15 years ago. So I I don't know about that. Right, it goes back. Well, well, Ludovic Bellier, thank you. So it's it's a really interesting, really interesting thing that you've done. Uh, And thanks so much for sharing, uh, sharing the details about it tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Ben. Let's head to Russia, because today, quite quietly, by the way, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, who was the head of this really awful mercenary group called Wagner, who are all over the world, they've just been, you know, they've been carrying out Russia's dirty work for a very long time now in places like Syria, the Central African Republic, and Mali, obviously in Ukraine. And Evgeny Prigozhin was sort of, you know, he was the head. He was, he had been Putin's chef at one point. That's how it works. Um, providing catering services to the Kremlin had helped catapult him to become this notorious mercenary leader, very rich, obviously. Um, and well, he led a mutiny back a few months ago. And you may remember this. They marched on Moscow, took over some military facilities in Rostov-on-Don, which is kind of near the Ukrainian border. And I mean, his beef was with Russia's military leadership over what he thought was failures in Ukraine. He thought they didn't know what they were doing. They were losing the war and that he could do better. And so he basically marched on them. But that was calling Vladimir Putin's uh, power into question as well by, you know, by association, he was challenging the leader. And you know what happens to people when they do that, right? I mean, oftentimes in Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin's opponents either end up in jail or they have violent accidents. And it was pointed out, of course, that uh, Evgeny Prigozhin died as he lived violently. Um, But today there was a small funeral for him outside of St. Petersburg. In St. Petersburg, uh, the 62-year-old was buried. That's where he's from. And basically, they tried to downplay this as much as humanly possible. There was some concern that his death will have led to some kind of protests, although we haven't seen any of them. So what does this all say? Because when this march happened on Moscow a few months ago, there were a lot of questions about whether this was, it certainly was the biggest challenge to Vladimir Putin's leadership that we'd seen. Uh, But what did it mean? And what does this death mean? Of course, you know, there's all kinds of theories about the fact that his plane was taken down, he was assassinated and so forth. No one is saying much about that right now. But interested to know what the impact is on Russia and on Vladimir Putin, specifically international economist Anders Aslund is now an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. He's a former advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine in the 90s, and his book is called Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. And he joins me now. Anders Aslund, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, uh, I, I guess Evgeny Pergozhin was was buried today uh, without very much fanfare. Uh, in fact, if anything, it was all kept very secret uh, and no sign of anyone from the Kremlin, let alone Vladimir Putin. I guess that doesn't come as much of a surprise to you. No, the Kremlin had uh, two alternatives, either take control over it and make it a big thing or risk that there would be a protest uh, if they did not con- control it. Uh, but they managed to keep it uh, small, so they avoided both uh, alternatives. Interesting. But 
Prigozhin, I mean, for listeners who forget, Sergei Evgeny Prigozhin, rather, and Vladimir Putin are old acquaintances. They've known each other for years and years and years. He was often referred to as as Putin's caterer, right? Yeah, and uh, I used to visit uh, one of Prigozhin's restaurants in St. Petersburg called uh, The Old Customs, which was a beautiful uh, restaurant with wonderful food. How did Prigozhin then go from that to being perhaps the most notorious and certainly one of the most deadly mercenary leaders in the world? Well, um, it comes rather naturally, and we can see that he and Putin have uh, pursued um, parallel courses, uh, dealing with uh, military, uh, secret service, and also uh, organized uh, crime. So it's very important to remember that Putin was deeply involved in organized crime, at least since uh, 1991 in St. Petersburg. Right. And and Prigozhin was part of that. I mean, he was part of the group that were were elevated alongside Putin as he rose to power as part of sort of his that cabal, that that family, so to speak. Indeed. So uh, Prigozhin spent uh, nine years in the 1980s in prison for um, robbery and uh, similar crimes. And in 1990, he came out and he started uh, uh, doing business and uh, moved on and up. What do you make of the timing of all this? Mm Well, uh, many important things. Uh, Soon afterwards, uh, uh, his uh, Wagner mercenary troops had to give up all their heavy equipment. And then uh, uh, thousands of them, uh, perhaps uh, 5,000, were evacuated uh, to Belarus. Uh, They were taken out of uh, Ukraine. Uh, So uh, first they were sort of uh, disarmed, not entirely, but basically. And... uh, uh, then uh, the Kremlin tried to seize control over Prigozhin's uh, many operations in Africa. So Prigozhin might have up to 20,000 troops in uh, Africa, in uh, 18 different uh, uh, countries. And uh, in several of these, he has uh, a, a couple of uh, thousand. Central African Republic, uh, Mali, Libya, and uh, Sudan seem to be uh, the, the most important. And you see that these are places with terrible regimes and uh, also with coups and um, instability. So this is what uh, uh, Prigozhin and the Russians uh, really want. And, and from that, because I gather another top commander, uh, Wagner commander, was killed in that same plane crash. It feels like the Kremlin has sort of taken the head off the head off the Wagner leadership. Uh, are they able then to continue uh, with new leadership over that group of, of mercenaries? Because clearly for Russia's foreign policy, it's something that matters to them. I dumped it because uh, the Russian military that now tries to take over is very bureaucratic, not at all imaginative. So I dumped that they can do the same thing as uh, Prigozhin did, who was, while a hardcore criminal, also a real entrepreneur. And uh, we must admit that he was considered uh, charismatic, even if uh, you and I might consider him more disgusting than charismatic. 
Yeah, uh, more of a, a war criminal than, than anything else. It, it, what do you think then happened? I mean, clearly what you just talked about, the bureaucracy of the Russian military, the failures in Ukraine, obviously. Uh, and that was what Prigozhin was so upset about. I don't don't believe his beef necessarily, to use that word, was with Putin himself, but it was with the rest of the military leadership. And I guess in that sense, he defied Putin. Yeah, and uh, it was clear that uh, Putin uh, took the side of the uh, defense minister, Sergei Shoigo, and the chief of the general staff, uh, uh, Valery Gerasimov. Andres Asland is with us this half hour, international economist. He is author of a book called Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. We're talking about Evgeny Prigozhin, the Wagner mercenary leader uh, who had a lot of, who died as he lived, one pundit put it, violently in a plane crash last week, uh, just a few months after uh, a mutiny against the military leadership, ostensibly, but also seen, no doubt, by Vladimir Putin as a challenge to his authority. Um, Andres, we've been talking a lot about Vladimir Putin and where he stands since this invasion began uh, more than 18 months ago now. With Pergosian's uprising and now with him gone, uh, what's your assessment of where Vladimir Putin, is he on shakier ground or on firmer ground than he was a few months ago? Well, I think that the, his probable murder of uh, Prigozhin puts him on much uh, safer ground because uh, now he's really a man to fear. He's much more like Stalin than like any other former Soviet uh, uh, leader. So this is a truly ruthless uh, uh, character. But at the same time, uh, it has been said about uh, uh, Prigozhin's attack on uh, March on Moscow that on the one hand, he failed. On the other hand, he showed it was possible, and nobody stood up in defense of Putin. So uh, if Prigozhin had uh, continued, it's quite possible that he would have been able to attack Moscow and uh, 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 take Moscow because nobody would have been uh, fighting for Putin. And uh, Putin's extraordinary weakness now, it is that he is uh, basically not appearing in public. There are strong beliefs that the the Putin who appears in public is uh, one or two doubles of Putin. It uh, turns out that uh, uh, Putin appears in two different geographic locations at about the same time. It happened uh, uh, around midsummer. And that does not quite make uh, make sense. And when you have uh, two Putin in terms of uh, behavior, one who sits in one of three bunkers that he has in at his uh, three uh, main residences, where he only sits and watches people on video. He doesn't dare to meet even his security council in person. So the security council, which is 13 people, which meets uh, about uh, every 10 days, it has not met in person one single time this year. Clearly, Putin is afraid that one of them, unknown who, will come too close to him and poison him with uh, some nerve uh, agent, uh, as uh, the uh, KGB, now the F- FSB or the GLU are, have a custom of uh, doing. And then he has uh, he travels between these uh, three residences on a special railway line where he has three uh, uh, railway wagons which are armored and he doesn't dare to fly any longer. If uh, if Putin flies, you can be sure that it's his double and not the real Putin. 
And various analysts are now claiming that um, the real Putin has not been seen for two months, that wow. the last time was on the 26th of June. I, I have no view about it. But uh, this is, for example, the Ukrainian military intelligence claims that uh, uh, this is uh, 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 the case. And Putin has even built special uh, railway stations for him at these three bunkers so that he ha- does not have to come close to any, anybody. Surrounded by enemies and ever more paranoid. I mean, we've seen this We've seen this movie before, right? Um, at the same time, here we are 18 months after the beginning of this invasion that was meant to last three days. We're now again, uh, you know, more than a year and a half. The economy seems to be in trouble, although I don't know how much trouble it is. You, you'll know more than I do on that. Um, but how would you assess, I mean, you've talked about it already, it's tough to run a country if you don't trust anyone and no one ever sees you. And the economy seems to be in trouble. Yeah, if we start with the economy, uh, we now saw that the ruble uh, fell sharply from around 70 ruble per dollar to 100 ruble per dollar. And this is because Russia does not have real reserves. Because the West has uh, frozen uh, reserves that uh, uh, the central bank held in in the West, and forty uh, percent of the remaining reserves are held in pretty useless uh, renminbi, with which they can only trade with uh, uh, China. Right. Uh, what they need is uh, dollar and euro, uh, and Putin has now uh, probably doubled the military expenditures uh, this year. And he doesn't have uh, coverage for it, because unlike our countries, Russia cannot borrow money, because nobody uh, is now allowed, because of the financial sanctions, to buy uh, Russian bonds, apart from the Russians themselves. And they are not uh, very keen on investing in Russian bonds. No. And we saw what happened with their space program. I mean, there's been obviously some fallout about what's going on with the economic issues there. And yet, so here we are 18 months later, Vladimir Putin is still in power. He seems to have, you know, cemented that power by getting rid of, again, of yet another threat to him. Um, and yet, having watched what happened in June with the march on Moscow, it feels like this could all all turn very quickly and unexpectedly now. Yeah. And I think that the big thing we should look for is uh, uh, partly what happens in Moscow, about mm-hmm. which we can't really know anything, and partly what is happening on the southern front in Ukraine, where Ukraine now finally has managed to break through the, the first defence line of the Russians um, in one area in the uh, south of Dnieper. The question is if they go ahead. I watched the Ukrainian videos and the Soldiers are rushing ahead through the Russian uh, trenches, and they seem very confident and happy. Well, Anders Aslan, thank you so much, as always, for your perspective on this. My pleasure.